This is the Sermon Podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace plus joy to each of you this day through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. So this week, um, I spent some time, obviously, I try to do this, where I read the texts and think through things, pray quite a bit, and as I prepared to be with you two weeks in a row, and also to welcome Pastor Jim back, some weird things came into my mind. Not about Pastor Jim. (laughs) No, actually, (laughs) I'll tell you later, but... um, (laughs) But I recalled my French 5 class from high school. Now, that was a long time ago. No comment, please. But we read a book en français called La Symphonie Pastorale by André Guide. And the story uh, of that, uh, the, the story within that novella is about a woman who's born with, with no sight, and she's adopted by a pastor. And that pastor attends to every one of her needs, including trying to waken up the world to her through understanding color, even though she can't see color. And the whole story is a meditation on the ways that people neglect to see or need to find new ways to see things outside of our experience, outside of our natural inclinations. I have to say it's also a very harsh critique of pastors and our lack of attending to incongruity that exists when we wrestle with the world and our charge of ordination and um, how we live and breathe. 
So last week I shared with you some ideas about sight, didn't I? And about the idea that the gospel is topsy-turvy, turns us upside down, makes us see in different ways. Today, I'd have to say that I'm focusing on seeing things differently, about being able to see beyond the immediate and to invest in what is hidden to be brought into the light and, as salt, catalyzed. Matthew's account of um, the Sermon on the Mount um, in it, Jesus lays out the blessed bees, you know, the beatitudes, and he lifts up then in our gospel two concrete ways, images, how gospel, how uh, disciples of the kingdom can be known in this world, the ways that we get to look differently at ourselves and our world. Salt of the earth, light of the world. Salt sharpens things. It lifts flavor, and it also invests in preserving. Light expands the view and gives us opportunity for more awareness, you could even say insight. So Jesus is calling would-be followers of the kingdom to sharpen our lives by living in the world in a way where what's important gets preserved, where energy is catalyzed, and where we can see and embrace more clearly how things are, to invest in creation beyond our immediate view, maybe our biases, uh, maybe our assumptions. Light just doesn't uh, banish darkness and illuminate corners and crevices. Light also works to offer new perspective to put our experiences and perceptions into a new light. To be a disciple of Jesus, of the kingdom, to be kingdom people, is not just to be a focused beam of light at some measurable laser-like narrowness intensity. It's something bigger than that. To be the light that Jesus challenges the disciples to be also means to continue to put a new light, a new perspective on all the world, to willingly change up the game plans, the paradigms that we're used to living every day. So Jesus' description of the kingdom where the blessed are, the poor in spirit, the mournful, the meek, the peacemakers, the persecuted, the childlike, that shifts our focus, doesn't it? It is topsy-turvy and redirects the light, our light. And I think that the Beatitudes force us to stop looking at just the big picture of maybe marketable success, a collective to be conquered, and instead to look at each person and all people as singular, significant, and embraced. I share with you some stories from my two weeks in the UK over January, which were marvelous, but um, I had the chance to take a train ride from London, which is where we were staying and um, working with a number of congregations that were doing very innovative outreach stuff in London. And I took a train uh, from London to Leeds, where I was meeting a pastor. And I love to ride on trains. Um, And so that's a great thing about being in Europe. And I happened to treat myself in a very privileged way to spend the extra money to book a first-class ticket on a train for three hours up and back. 
And I wanted to eat, because they give you food. You don't have to pay for it. Well, you did already, right? We can eat and um, read and think, pray. Um, so I have the resources to be able to do that. That's a treat. So our first stop was on the north side of London, where an obviously high-powered business guy boarded the train, and he sat in the seat across the aisle from me, and he was really restless, and he was carrying lots of papers. I think he had a couple books in there, too. And the attendant walked down the aisle and had to remind him to be quiet and to get off his cell phone. After that reminder, he promptly fell asleep. So stop two, a little bit farther north. A father, two young kids, arrived and sat in the seats immediately in front of me. And I thought it was, at first, it was just really brave to bring two little ones into a first-class coach. Um, And as I was thinking that, all chaos broke loose in the coach when the children proceeded to run up and down the aisle, making a lot of noise and disturbing everybody. Now, I was irritated. You know, I paid my money. And I was trying to think, though, how I was going to handle this when the businessman woke up and he sharply confronted the father of these two, two children for not controlling his children. He what, did it strongly, he did it loudly, and he did it directly. And he said, and I would love to be able to imitate an English accent, but I'm not there yet, so, but I, this is what he said. But imagine it in, in English, in um, British. You really should teach your children better manners. Besides, it's not just a matter of behaving badly. It's not safe when the train is careening down the tracks for them to be running up and down the aisles. So the father looked down, and, you know, amazingly, he just took the criticism amazingly well. But this is what he said. He said, sorry, you're right. I should be insisting that they behave better, especially here in this kind of setting in public. But we've just come from the hospital where their mother died unexpectedly. And they're in a state of shock and don't know how to react. In fact, I don't know what to do. So I'm not on top of things right now. I am sorry. Thank you for waking me up to my responsibility. That minute everything changed from one moment of story, utterance, truth, that business person shifted from being angry and annoyed to being sympathetic and helpful. He made a shift in his salt and light. He saw this reality in a new light, a new catalyst for engaging, living what we believe. Suddenly, that very weary, driven commuter, train traveler, was seeing someone in the way Jesus sees all of us sees all of us, that means you and me, not just as a focused beam of momentary interaction, but as a whole person, a whole spectrum of good to bad that makes up every single one of our lives. The light that Jesus calls the disciples to share out into the world is a light that equally illuminates sin and suffering. It's a light that knows judgment but offers love. It's a light that sees deserved condemnation, but extends the commitment of divine comfort. Thinking about a statement I want to 
share with you, you tell me what you think about this. The truth is that Satan knows our name, but calls us by our sin. And Jesus knows our sin, but calls us by our names. Our God is a God who knows us intimately, wildly, deeply, and cherishes us with a relationship that's just not about surfacy, sweet, sappy, insincere, supportive love. I tried to get all S's, but I couldn't do it. It's about whole life, whole person, even when we're at our ugliest and life has taken away all of our resources, and we engage in end-of-the-rope behavior. Now, I know you have not had end-of-the-rope behavior in your life, but I certainly have. Instead, we get to be real because we're adored and we have constant personal presence so that we are challenged as well as accompanied on this train ride that we all face. The name above all names knows our name. And naming is the beginning of sight, light, and the salty catalyst of help and hope. Jesus calls each of us to see other people as Jesus sees them. And I think that that's the insight that Jesus' light gives disciples. We direct our thoughts, we direct our tasks, our compassion, our love to individuals with names, not institutions or instruments with numbers or outcomes. The light that Jesus gives his disciples enables us to be glowworms. Maybe you could say lightsabers if you want to go the Star Trek route in the world. And Jesus' light does more than make us a lighthouse, a lighthouse beacon to the benighted and the lost. Jesus' light gives us more than to make us a hallowed halo on a hill. Jesus' light infiltrates every, letter, uh, every level of the light spectrum as blind as we can be and gives us a whole new perspective on life. And when we hear the word repentance, you know, we, we think of, of words like sorry or maybe forgive me, but really it's about turning around. It's a change of perspective, a mind turn around, a whole new way of looking at the world. To repent is to look at the world and each other in Jesus' light. So I, instead of thinking about spoiled kids running around um, through a first-class commuter train coach, the weary, restless traveler saw the truth. This is a family in pain, a family suffering a huge loss, a family trying, just trying to cope. The change in perspective changed everything. People who are hungry need to be fed. Kids who have no place to sleep need a safe place to bed down worldwide. Seeing the reality of what individuals are dealing with in their lives helps us focus the light of our faith in their immediate needs, not our long-term goals. If we all knew what each other was going through, we would see each other in another light. New light, brighter light. So this Jesus light illumines our insights. It puts a new light on old perspectives, but it also banishes shadows and blackened corners of our lives. It also lets us see what we could be. 
who God is calling us to be, what's completely transformable in our lives. We're called to be light. We're also invited to immerse ourselves and transform ourselves in that light, that new vision of possibilities and perspectives. And we're invited to continue Jesus' mission on this earth. But we can only learn about that if we experience it in an embodied, fleshy, everyday way. No child, no human being on the face of the earth should have the blank pages of their life filled up with the forbidding text of a story that's over before it's begun. A book that opens only to be shut, already weighted down to close by the burdens of birth, biology, and bias. Jesus didn't want, just want his disciples to see people as they really are. That was the first step. The disciples who truly embrace Jesus' light, who see this new illumination on the world as the person to see, who sees people as Jesus sees them. And Jesus never, ever saw anyone as a sinner, only as a sufferer. Jesus never saw anyone as someone who'd fallen short, but as someone that probably needed help to get to the finish line. Healing, not condemnation. So I, I think the challenge that we're faced with the gospel um, today is for each of us to see the story and the testimony of another traveler's life. To, disciples don't need to see others as people who've fallen short, but as people who need help to be challenged, to be catalyzed, or maybe sometimes even carried across the finish line. Disciples don't need to condemn anyone, especially those trapped in the slavery of sin, but offer the power of divine leverage and love. In so many ways, I think Jesus encounters others in Scripture as if he's saying in the words of an, uh, an old television character by, um, by the name of Telly Savalas. I'm dating myself here again. It's a TV star, 70s and 80s, I think. But he used to say, who loves your baby? To each one of us, Jesus says a variation on that theme. You are lovely. Does no one love you? And we probably most of the time say, I don't know. I don't think I'm lovely. I don't think I'm lovable. And Jesus says to that, I do. Can you allow me to be enough? May it be so. Amen.